Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Bird, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week Rebecca chats to Gabby Edlin and Rachel Grocott of Bloody Good Period about the planned changes at the top of the period poverty charity. And in this week's Good News Bulletin we've got a potentially explosive story about a donation to a charity shop. But first, we just wanted to take a moment to say goodbye and thank you to our producer, Lindsay Riley. Lindsay edited her final podcast episode with us last week. She is an audio wizard who worked with us throughout the pandemic and she helped us make the very ambitious jump to a weekly podcast format. Yeah, she's done an amazing job supporting us and our guests, coping with tech mishaps and just making the show sound great. And on one memorable occasion, she did join in the show in disbelief at one of our stories. And genuinely, that is one of my favourite moments from this podcast. It was an absolute career highlight the day we made Lindsay. (laughs) When Lindsay broke the fourth wall, I said, we've nailed it. This is now a really good podcast. Um, But yes, we say a very, very fond farewell to Lindsay, but also a big hello to our new producer, Joe Walker, who we're sure is going to be equally awesome. Um, And I'm not just saying it because he's in the room with us right now recording this as we speak. This is a very new experience, having the producer just there. We're waving at Joe. (laughs) He's being very professional and silent. Uh, So in this week's episode, we're also going to be saying farewell, or perhaps it's au revoir, I'm not entirely sure, to another sector legend. Gabby Edlin founded Bloody Good Period in 2016. At the time, she was volunteering at a drop-in centre for destitute asylum seekers in London. Given that people seeking asylum in the UK receive just £37.75 in state support each week, period products are often financially inaccessible. So while volunteering, Edlin asked if she could bring period products to the drop-in centre for the refugee and asylum-seeking women who visited. But she was told that these items were only provided in an emergency situation. I put that in quote marks there. Because of this, which seemed a very peculiar decision, Gabby turned to Facebook and she put up a post requesting donations of pads and other period products for the centre. In response, she was flooded with gifts of pads and tampons from family and friends. And Bloody Good Period, the charity that gives period products to those who can't afford them and provides menstrual education to those less likely to access it, was born. In April, Edlin announced the time had come for her to step away from the charity. In a statement announcing her plans, Edlin said, I believe that it's the responsibility of a good founder to know when it's time to say goodbye and to trust that the team they've built and support they've harnessed will be okay without them. And I think this taps into her broader attitude to how charities should work as well. Perhaps this is going to come up in your conversation, Rebecca, but I remember when I interviewed Gabby at the end of 2019, she told me, I don't want to become the biggest charity in the UK. I want to become the fastest to die. If we're still doing the same thing in five years' time, there will either be something seriously wrong with society or we will not have been doing that job well. So, you know, it's a very, very interesting view and I think one that is actually growing within the sector as well. Absolutely. You definitely used to see a lot more kind of we just want to grow for growth's sake and now I think there's a lot more questioning happening within the sector of like actually what does that mean and why would we do that? But in the meantime, Bloody Good Periods Communications and Public Fundraising Director Rachel Grocott will be taking over as Chief Executive when Edlin steps down at the end of May. I started by asking Edlin why she believed it was important for a founder to know when to leave and why this was the right time for her. So, Gabby, Rachel, thank you very much for joining us. Um, So, Gabby, you've said that you believe that it's the responsibility of a good founder to know when it's time to say goodbye. Why is that and and why do you think now is that time? Yeah, I mean, I think any founder that you, any good founder that you meet will 
always know that they're not going to stay around forever. I mean, I don't think there's any perfect time to say goodbye. I don't think there's like an exact amount of years that you should be doing the work for. Just for me, I just knew that it was time for me to go. I just, the work changed and it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. And that's not to say it wasn't really interesting, like new work, but I am a founder at my core, I think, rather than a CEO, actually. And that just became really clear to me at the end of last year. I think there's, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure we'll get into this a lot more, but there's always going to be a lot of ego tied to founding something. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be the first to admit it. I hope I'm not the last, but I didn't want to hold on to something just because it was mine basically or I had started it and so it was really important to me to leave when the charity didn't feel like it was about me it was really important to me to leave when the charity is doing really really well and to be able to hand over to somebody who doesn't just have to think about it surviving but is able to think about it thriving it's just something that we all need to be more open about, I think, as founders, that it is really, really hard to leave something because your ego is so attached to it. And it's something that I've really, you know, found to be quite a big challenge. I mean, luckily, it's always been the sort of smaller part of me that's like, that wants to remain just because, you know, it's it's who a huge part of me is tied to. Mm. But actually, you know, it's always just been much more important to me to say, you know, here, here is my ego and I will accept it but actually it's not going to lead my work and who I am and it's not going to be in charge of how bloody good period works so yeah that's that's something that I think we can try and talk about more as founders mm. you know and I ser- I certainly plan to anyway and it, it strikes me that actually that ego is quite necessary to do something like this that you need a certain amount of ego to go shut up and listen to me because this has to change and here's what I'm going to do about it and this is why you're going to help me. But then also, you know, it's hard work and you need to have that kind of, that dedication that's putting yourself at the centre of it to do it, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I would like to see more of that in the sector of, especially like young people and young women being able to stand up and say, you know, this is not right. What you've all been doing, this doesn't work. I think it's also really important to note that I have the privilege of whiteness and that people are more likely to listen to me, unfortunately, in a really racist world. So I think it's also, you know, not only up to people to be able to have that ego and stand up and say, this isn't right, but for perhaps more established people to listen and say, actually, maybe maybe you are correct, you yeah. know, and, and make space for those people, which I've been lucky enough to, to be able to do or yeah. to have. And, and that makes sense. I just wanted to go back to the bit where you're saying about the, the work had changed. Like, how, how had it changed, do you think? Well, it just becomes more about keeping it sort of steady and keeping it secure. And that's really interesting stuff to do, but it's not, it's not what I want to do. And you have to love this work to do it. You certainly don't do it for the money. And it felt sort of insincere, really, to be doing something just because I felt that I should carry on, really. And I know that there's other people who can do those things better. So, you know, the I, I know I'm really good at starting something, at getting people involved, at getting things going, at setting visions, values. But I know that my strengths don't lie in keeping that strategy going or, you know, just the general day-to-day management of a charity, which is so crucially important for the success of it. You can't just have a visionary leader. You have to have somebody who knows how to... I realise I just described myself as a visionary leader. That sounds <laughs> terrible. 
I think when you've set up an organization and done quite well, like, yeah, you have to have a vision to do that, right? Like, yeah, yeah sure. You also need ability to make sure everybody's okay, to make sure everything's keeping going, to make sure, you know, you have really great relationships with ongoing funders. And, you know, while I was, I, I think I could have done that, it's not my skill set. And I felt ready to sort of leave that work to somebody who was really good at it. No, absolutely. So, it's been five years since you set the charity up and uh, Rachel, you've also been involved from kind of very, very early on in this charity. What do you think have been the kind of standout moments for you over, for both of you over the past five years that sum up the whole experience? I am just so many for me. So I started four years ago on menstrual health day, which I think Gabby described it as like Santa starting a job on Christmas day. It is a pretty major day in this space. And I just remember, so at that point in time, my job was running the social media channels. So I just remember the total flood of notifications of stories being told, of conversations being had and feeling, wow, this is a really exciting, vibrant space to be in. And all these conversations are just starting and there's so much potential and I think that's been a continued theme for the last well five and a half years but certainly the four and a bit that I've been involved and it feels like there's still that huge potential but so much change has been achieved as well in the last few years so you know we've had recent things like the change in language in Asda and Boots they now have a period products aisle which has been praised as you know massively forward thinking and it is but Gabby has been you know (laughs) well yes <laughs> Gabby is, is just sorry. Rachel was just being so um, kind. <laughs> I was coming on to say, but we have been saying that for five and a half years, and it is. And people saying it before we started. Exactly. As well. So, so what, what, so what was it before? Was it kind of sort of I'm trying sanitary to sanitary products oh, yeah. or feminine okay. hygiene, which sorry, have been burst into love. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's that's a really good point. Absolutely. You know, those have been banned words at BGP for nearly all of our existence. Um, And because of our work and the work of other activists in this space as well, you know, we're now seeing change in high street retailers, which is brilliant. But to see it described as forward thinking, hence Gabby's laughter, (laughs) you know, is interesting. And I haven't seen anywhere where Asda and Boots have credited the work of activists like BGP in achieving that change. So it's an interesting area. We're seeing change, but there's still so much more to be done. So to go back to your question, you know, standout moments, there are lots of those, but there's still lots of standout potential as well, if that makes sense, you know, looking forward, which makes it, you know, really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And for Gab- uh, Gabby, for you, what's been the um, sort of the 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 moment when you go, yeah, we did that or, or sort of the standout experience for you? Oh God, there's so many. There are so many. Like, it's really a nice position to be in to like, just be like, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I guess, I guess because we're on third sector, I guess one of like my major moments was being on the front of third sector magazine <laughs> with a giant pad. Like that was just to me, I was like, Oh, because I always knew that what we were doing was really great and really important. You know, I've never doubted that for a second. I didn't think other people thought that. 
you know, mm. in this in the sector. So that was like a really big deal, like to sit down with Emily and to talk about how the work we were doing is influencing other charities. That was exciting for me because, you know, I've always been about pushing change in as many different arenas as you possibly can. Hmm. That was really cool for me. You know, seeing the changes that are happening. I mean, and I'll talk about this a bit a bit more after, but sort of seeing the changes that are happening just culturally because of the work that we've done you know, regardless of whether we get any credit or not, I'm not going to waste any time trying to get that because I know what we've done, really. So yeah. the third sector was really exciting because that, that felt like a real moment of, of culture change as well. Amazing. Yeah, it was. Uh, so I think that was the second edition after we had our relaunch and it was kind of, yeah, just a picture of you and this massive sanitary towel with kind of little red buttons Period sewn pad. on it. Period pads. This is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a process. It's getting yourself used to saying different language rather mm. than. I don't mean to tell you. What. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> this is the thing. I completely agree with you. And having had that conversation like thirty seconds ago, I'm then like, yeah, okay, but the towel is a sanitary towel. Why? What's what's it doing that's making you healthier? Uh, I mean, apart mm-hmm. from anyway. So, what would you say you've been proudest of, Gabby? I think the way that we've been able to move people's thinking in the charity sector especially or even just charity supporters from you you know you go to a foreign country and take loads of products to actually like a justice-based we need to change the way that the system works as well as making sure that people get the products that they have asked for and that they require and tying that in with education and awareness and really also not leading with shame not leading with shame when you're trying to end shame so not leading with euphemism not leading with the stigma in itself but actually just sort of cutting out the middleman and just talking about the very thing that's some of the stuff that I've been really proudest of and I can see I can see the actual change in society, I can see the way people talk about periods and the way that, you know, advertisers, other charities, you know, shops like Rachel was talking about, even just like in in the media, it's different. And that was us like, you know, mm. and I'm hugely proud of that massively proud amazing and i mean this organization sort of literally started out as a facebook status and has grown into a you know it's still a small charity but it is an established charity and as you say it is it is having an impact what has been the biggest challenge of growing it to this point do you think i mean my biggest challenge i want to do everything and i want to do everything very 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 well but you can't you have to do one or two things really really well so for me the struggle was sort of not allowing a mission creep and not allowing us to end up trying to do everything around asylum seeking and refugee women and people who menstruate, not trying to do everything around education and often sort of having to put those boundaries in quite firmly with myself and with the team and with trustees to say like, we co- sorry, like this isn't, this isn't aligning with our mission. It's challenging because you don't want to sort of stifle people's, people's creativity. And also if you care about something very hard, then you're probably going to care about a lot of other things as well. Mm. And so you're going to want to sort of do as much as you can. So that for me was a real challenge. And I and guess a- the other big challenge that, that we can never ignore in any conversation these days is the fact that we've had to contend with a global pandemic that has changed pretty much every aspect of how we work so our Mm. on the ground operations how we actually deliver products you know the model we have now is completely different to the one we had at the start of 2020 and in many ways it's it's far better it's more efficient it enables us to reach more people I think that's something else to be massively proud of that we were able to adapt 
and actually improve the way we do things, even though the you know the starting point of it was obviously not a great thing. And also, of course, all the challenges in terms of fundraising and volunteer engagement that that threw up as well. You know, not not being mm. able to have in person bloody brunches and pad collection <laughs> events well, and all that. those things that was that was happening before um, before COVID. You know, that's obviously a, a massive challenge. And I, I guess linked to that is the fact that we never want want to exist. You know, we've said extensively, we've mm. just celebrated our fifth birthday. We don't want to make it to 10. But the need is going up all the time. You know, the pandemic drove that up. And now we've got the combined impact of the cost of living crisis and the refugee crisis. It doesn't look like we're going to be going anywhere anytime soon because we are still needed to fill this gap because government are not providing this basic necessity for people who have periods. No, that makes sense. And we've sort of talked a bit about kind of the, you know, the one of your aims has been to kind of battle against harmful imagery, kind of stereotyping imagery, the sort of white saviour imagery. And that's something that I think the whole sector has been wrestling with, not just kind of those working sort of around sort of period issues, around women's issues, that sort of thing. And you've been quite kind of explicit about your aim to move away from that sort of imagery. Do you think there has been a shift in the wider sector away from these kind of, you know, what you've described as very harmful conventions in communications? Or is there still, you know, more work to be done than has been done? But noticed a lot of change. (laughs) No, not really. Mm. I think the charity sector is, or often is, maybe not for everybody, is underfunded and under-resourced and under far more pressure than any other sector to perform with much less money than anybody, any other company or sector or organisation would be expected to. And so I think there is both the lack of capacity to be able to really make these changes. I think there is a huge lack of real understanding as to why we talk about this stuff. I think there is still a massive, massive problem with understanding the racist impact of what charity can have. And therefore, if you don't really understand that, you're not really going to understand why you don't use sad pictures of people of colour to fundraise all the time. Mm. And I think there's also a lot of fear because for for many charities that has worked. Like that brings in the big buck. So why would you change it, you know? And so I think there's a huge way to go. I think there needs to be a lot more bravery and a lot more risk taking within the sector. And I think there needs to be a much better understanding outside of the sector as to why charities need to be braver and take those risks to allow this to happen. But no, I haven't seen a lot of change. But I have to say, like, you know, I don't want anyone sort of calling me up and saying, we did this, we did this. Like, I don't sit, I don't sit and check through charities, comms work, like we have enough to do within our own charity. Um, I just know what I've seen. Yeah, there may be pockets of of, of change, but there's certainly not been the sea change that you would have hoped to see, perhaps. Sure. Well, I don't, I mean, yeah, sure. Hope. I don't think I expected. (laughs) Things don't, things don't change that quickly. Mm. Like, you know, these things take a long time to really make change. And I know that there are really smart and interesting people in the sector who are maybe not in positions of power yet, who want to make those changes. And I have faith that they will. It's not just about, you know, diversity, having different, you know, 
people from different countries, people with different cultures, people with different skin colours in the room. It's about diversity of thinking. And if you don't have a diversity of thinking, then these changes are just not going to be made. They're just not going to happen. No, absolutely. So speaking of change and people changing positions, seamless segue there. Obviously, Rachel, uh, you're going to be taking over as chief executive. And this moment of transition is obviously quite a big one for the charity. What have both of you had to kind of bear in mind in terms of approaching it to ensure that kind of it, it isn't disruptive and is helpful? I guess, yes, of course, it is a big transition, but it's massively helpful, of course, that the baton is being handed over to someone who has been within the team for a long time, knows the existing team, knows the trustees, etc. And I've certainly been really mindful of working with the team, making sure that as far as we... I was going to say can feel comfortable with it, we can, but I don't think we want to feel comfortable with it because this is a massive moment. So we've all had to sit in meetings where we go, wow, this is really weird. Gabby's not here. Yeah, I'm <laughs> or, sat there crying when I am it's in the all that. As well. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And I think recognising that emotion is really important for all of us because, you know, like Gabby has talked about, this is founded on passion and wanting to do something about the fact that the world is not an equal and fair place. So for us to remove emotion from that would be totally wrong. So I think allowing space for us all to feel that and support each other through it has been really important. And I'm sure there'll be more of that over the kind of month to come. It is an emotional process, I think, for everybody and definitely for me as well, because I've learned so much from Gabby. You know, when I started, I was doing five hours a week. I was very pregnant as well when I started. So I went through a massive life change of having a <laughs> baby and working around a young family, etc. Mm. So the idea of now not having Gabby around as, as my support is emotional for me, too. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a big transition, but allowing room for us to feel those emotions I think is really important you know we're not machines we're all humans um, and heart and soul has gone into this organisation and will continue to. Now, brilliant and, and Gabby for you kind of what have you had to bear in mind is it that sort of wrench of physically removing yourself from meetings and going I don't need to be here maybe I shouldn't be here what's been the thing for you? Yeah it's really hard to know what the right thing to do is um, we've been really lucky our chair of trustees Sue Rubenstein is an absolute oracle in people and organizations and so we it wouldn't be successful as successful without her sort of guiding it you know I think one of the main things is that this is slow we do everything like even though it looks sometimes on the outside like BGP like bam 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 like we do this this this, we don't we move really really slowly not in a sort of bureaucratic everything has to go through people way but in let's talk about this let's consider this is this right for us and it's been exactly the same with my leaving I decided in around autumn that it was time for me to go I think if we hadn't been really sure that uh, Rachel was the right person it may it would have taken even longer but we were really lucky in that we had a sort of ready to go person that meant I could leave in spring yeah it's it's about making sure everything feels sort of considered slow we've been we've got meticulous excel sheets and plans as to how everything gets done and how everything gets discussed and in what order and I think it was really important for uh, me to consider how to tell the team so I made sure to tell everyone individually within a week so that it didn't feel anything turned into like gossip or sort Mm. of hearsay or anything like that your point about physically separating myself that's it's really it's it's really hard there's sort of no two ways about it like it's everything because it started from just me 
everything is set up basically in my name because you need a name to set this kind of stuff up. Mm. Um, so doing the endless admin of changing logins, changing passwords, <laughs> changing, you know, where my name is in certain places is both long and really quite emotionally draining. So yeah, it's hard. It's really hard to leave an organisation that you founded. Mm. And Gabby, do you know what you're kind of going on to next? Have you sort of thought about that? I think lots of different things, but I think something that I would be really interested in is working with different organisations to see how they can make sure that what they talk about externally matches what they talk about in or what they do internally. And I'd be really interested in helping organisations like find their voice, really. It's not, you know, one way or or another way. It's there's so many different ideas. And I think that a lot of these organisations have it in them and have really brilliant people. But like I talk about, there's this fear, I think, and I'd like to work with organisations to help them overcome that and to really like be able to talk to their supporters like I've been able to do in BGP and to be able to have a really solid base of not just donors, but but people who really support their work and really want to make a, a change in whatever they're doing. But most importantly, I'm going to do nothing for two months. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, planning on going swimming in the ponds in Hampstead, watching a lot of TV and not thinking about periods, except maybe for five days of the month when I absolutely have to. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's my plan. And there's some interesting creative things yet that I can't talk about yet. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll be out there. Fabulous. Sounds very exciting. And yeah, well-deserved break. Um, so Rachel, kind of taking on the, the, at the helm of this charity, what are you most looking forward to? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I, I'm one of the things is working with this amazing team that Gabby has established. That is one of the amazing legacies that Gabby leaves. We've got a brilliant team of passionate people, super experienced in their respective fields. And it's genuinely exciting to work with them. You know, it sounds really corny, but I think every time we have a team meeting, we all say at the end how much fun we've had and that we all feel energised by each other's work and there's so much potential. It's corny, but it's true. And what an amazing position to be in, an amazing opportunity to lead a team like that. So massively excited for that. I think the other thing is, is going back to that potential I talked about earlier. You know, we've achieved a lot, you know, very tangible change, delivered so many products to people who otherwise would have had to go without, navigated this global crisis, achieved so much. Yet I still have conversations with individuals and organisations who are only just starting to think about periods, are only just starting to be made aware of the fact that we need to think about menstruation and factor it in to our workplaces, to making sure that people have the products they need and it's not an unattainable luxury, which is just ridiculous when you think mm. about it. So those, you know, we've done so much and built so much awareness, yet for so many, that's still at the, the very early stages. So it just feels like there's so much more potential, so many more conversations we can have and change we can instigate. And that's yeah, massively exciting. Oh, brilliant. And what are your kind of plans for the charity going forward? I appreciate predicting the future. Very, very dangerous, as we know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, what is the kind of next phase of the charity for you? I mean, the the mission of the charity and the fundamental purpose of why we're here absolutely remains unchanged. We don't believe that anybody should be at a disadvantage simply because they menstruate. And we want to make sure that we're providing products for people who need them. Of course, immediately that 
is a particular challenge because the cost of living crisis, the refugee crisis, you know, we are seeing need going up. Our waiting list is increasing. We're distributing more products at the same time as as having potential threats to our fundraising. So um, that is a particular kind of, well, I was going to say short term, but I think it might be a longer term set of issues to tackle. But the overall mission of the charity absolutely remains the same. We're really excited about the potential of our Bloody Good Employers scheme, which is all about normalising periods in the workplace and helping workplaces have better culture and communications and policies around periods. I think that's got massive potential to really change so many people's experiences. And it feels like, you know, post-pandemic, again, probably isn't the right phrase, but in whatever this phase is called now... It's the right time to do that. So that will be another kind of massive area of of work for us going forward and continuing to start all these conversations because, yeah, lots of good change, but still lots of people who we need to remind to say period products instead of sanitary products because it takes time. And all of those things, those conversations just need to keep happening. And we're here to, to do that. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us both. Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. Okay, Rebecca, what have you got for us this week? I mean, this definitely falls into the quirky end of this remit, probably rather than positive, but it's fun. Um, So as promised, this is a potentially explosive story about a donation to the British Heart Shop Foundation in Wigan. Listen, Rebecca, I know you like charity shops, but do you think Explosive is maybe making a little bit of a reach? Yeah, stick with me. This story's either going to be a blast or it's going to bomb. Last Sunday, police had to set up a 100-metre cordon around the store in Mesnes Street after a grenade was found inside a piece of furniture that had been donated. Stop, because I already have questions. So I guess my first question then is, if you were going to hide a grenade in a piece of furniture, what piece of furniture would you hide a grenade in? Honestly, I'm just thinking about the last time I moved my sofa cushions and all the things I found down there. So I feel like a grenade would would slot in quite nicely down there. So I think that's probably where it's going to end up. I'm just so intrigued. I mean, what what but you know, what would they hide? Is it in a wardrobe? Was it in a chest of drawers? Was it something really out there personally? You know, I was really tempted by the idea of, you know, a B-day with a lid. Not sure why <laughs> not having said that, not sure why you'd ever donate a B-day to a charity shop. Who knows? But think of the musical sound that would make as it went <laughs> off. Um, but, but having pondered it probably for far longer than I should have done, I did think that if I was going to, I would ultimately stuff a grenade into the centre of a goose feather vintage mattress. Because think of the visuals. That would that would that would look very good. It would um, be magnificent. Yeah, our news editor Andy Ricketts also suggested a poof. Quite idea of a poof that goes poof. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's always there's always got to be a terrible low grade pun in every episode, and, and there we go. But. Yep. Okay, let's keep on track. What exactly happened when this grenade was discovered in this unspecified piece of furniture? So the fire brigade and specialist police officers had to be called, according to the Manchester Evening News. So we don't know what type of furniture it was. Unfortunately, that question wasn't answered by this news story. But Greater Manchester Police later confirmed that it was a grenade, but was not a viable explosive device. And crucially, that it had not been donated with any malicious intent. So this wasn't where people, somebody had a real vendetta against the British Heart Foundation. I think that is quite an important point, but I also really love the idea that somebody got to the till and it was like, unexpected item in bagging area. This <laughs> <laughs> um, is a vintage World War II grenade. But you have to presume that either the donor didn't know it was there or they genuinely thought it might be a nice thing that someone would be pleased to find and buy 
in a charity <laughs> shop. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll have that nice little top from H&M. I'll have the pair of John Lewis shoes. Oh, yeah, you know, might treat myself to a natty little secondhand grenade. Put it on the mantle. Perfect. <laughs> you know, iconic. So, again, I think this falls under the rule for charity shop donations, which we came up with when the last list of weirdest donations was published uh, a few months back, which uh, was, um, before giving an item to charity, ask yourself, if this is something I were to receive in the post, would I think I was being targeted by a serial killer? If the answer is yes, don't don't give it. And I, I do think a, a grenade would, would put me on edge if I got it in the post, you know? Even today, I think I'm still slightly haunted by the cattle castrator that <laughs> someone donated to that Bernardo's shop at the end of last year. Why? I see for me see for me it was the it was the molars, the pot of human molars, but yeah, just the molars? Teeth, the human teeth. Just, just, just molars. That's the yeah. The good news, presumably, with this story is that the charity shop ultimately was not blown up. But, you know, ultimately I suppose you could say the story turned out to be a little bit of a damp squib. <laughs> yes. And this is the way the show ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper and with the police being called, apparently. Uh, We'll be back for another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guests, Gabby Edlin and Rachel Grocott. And of course, our producer, Joe Walker at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.